You're listening to Unpaused, the podcast for women who want to reinvent their career after an extended break from work or mastermind a new one. London-based travel journalist Juliet Kinsman has spent almost 30 years sharing stories about the world's most special places to spend time on holiday. You might know her as the founding editor of Mr and Mrs Smith, the first company to focus on a more boutique travel experience. Or perhaps you've consulted her travel tips in The Times or National Geographic's Travel Magazine or Lonely Planet, to name a few. Or on the radio, she's a fixture at the BBC. And yes, as a travel writer marooned at home with no audience to speak to because, let's face it, no one went anywhere for two years, COVID could have triggered an existential pause. But looking back, Juliet not only took COVID in her stride, but identifies her big pivot when she decided to reinvent herself, this time as a travel sustainability expert, building on years of experience in thinking about how much better it would be if we travelled in a way that left behind a beneficial, more thoughtful impact on the local community rather than some conglomerate offshore. Today, she's Condé Nast Traveller magazine's first ever sustainability editor and is the go-to person for enlightened hotels and businesses who want to genuinely support the communities in which they operate and travellers who've decided that getting closer to a culture and community while on holiday is how they now prefer to travel. Let me welcome Juliet Kinsman. What was the first really big gritty job you had that you felt set you on this path? 20 years ago, two of my friends came to me and they said, we have a great idea for something. And they were sort of mysterious. And we eventually we met up and their idea was to do a hotel guidebook. And at that point I had been editing music magazines and they said, look, there's no guidebook out there for the likes of us somewhere that really has stylish, great hotels with tips on what to do at the weekend. 20 years ago, their idea was, was what would become called Mr. And Mrs. Smith. So we had beautiful coffee table books. We had black and white sort of functional books, but there wasn't something like what we were about to create. And in 2003, our first guidebook came out. It outsold Harry Potter in Waterstones in in Piccadilly, our busiest bookshop. And a sort of very significant brand was born. And it was exciting to be part of that because it was like a movement. It went on to become best known for um, recommending boutique hotels. We didn't really use that term at that, at that moment. It was a celebration of independently owned, sexy, romantic, stylish hotels. And it sort of became a genre. And so if you fast forward a few years, of course, it, it, it went digital, it evolved into a booking service, which was wonderful. My role had always been editorial. So it had been dispatching reviewers to write anonymous reviews. That was really important to me. And I loved doing that. I did that for many years. And and certainly that was a significant move in my career. 2015, what I noticed, there was a particular sort of new generation of hotel that was not only stylish and beautiful and cool, it was also doing good. So that's when I moved towards celebrating sustainable hotels. And had you always been interested in the environment? I mean, was that sort of a natural segue? Yes, it's such a great question. People always ask me, how did you get into sustainability? And of course, it was never really conscious, but I always had a conscience, I guess. I was brought up by grandparents from the north of England. And I think 
that makes you, my grandfather was an electrical engineer. It makes you very aware of the environment and your role in it. And they would always plastic bags. My granny would rinse them out and say, otherwise, where are they going to end up? And so I was always mindful. They were always thrifty. We never wasted Mm. food in the house. That sort of war, World War II mentality, actually. So that was just how I was brought up. And I was always sort of made to think about how my actions affected other people. Now, I'm not saying it was always like that. I also spent my childhood in New York, which is the absolute consumerism, capitalism, capital of the world, which was a very extractive, uh, consumptive uh, existence. So very different. Going back to Mr. and Mrs. Smith, before we move on to the sustainability chapter, what was the critical skill that you think has informed every role that you've had from then to now? And secondly, what do you wish you'd known? I'm going to say that the thread that runs through everything is obviously storytelling. I think what I've always done since I edited music magazines back in the 90s and then what I did with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, my mantra was always to entertain but also inform. And I think it's really important that you share information in a way that's fun to read so that people, you know, they process it easily. Uh, So I call that, well, I went on to call that edutainment because when when I then talked about sustainability, it's educating whilst entertaining. It's the same approach, but people won't really process what you're saying unless it's enjoyable to read. So I would say it's, it's, it's definitely storytelling, but doing it in a way where maybe where you're delivering something that typically has been a bit dry or boring, Mm. but hopefully is fun to to hear Mm. about. And what about the gaps? What's the big thing that you wish you'd sort of mastered back in the day? It would be business studies and it would be sort of accountancy and understanding admin. That sounds crazy, but actually I really wish I'd had the opportunity. My daughter's studying business studies at school. I did home economics. I can make a mean resource. It was so sexist back then. I Mm. wish I'd really had that sort of structure and and known how to run a business. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. I mean, you're not the only woman to say that. Yeah. Do you think when you made the leap from travel to sustainable travel, do you think that that was intuitive or were you sort of constantly monitoring the environment and looking for the next big shift? It's funny, again, people always say, oh, Julia, you're so savvy. You always know exactly the right topic to pick because it's on trend. It wasn't that at all. You know, with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we were aware of the zeitgeist because that was our taste and what we wanted. Same with the sustainability. I didn't ever think that's going to be a big trend. I just, you know how I operate? I think, what does the world need? I said this to a client yesterday. I don't think, what do you want to do as a business? What do I want to do as a professional? I think, what does the world need? So the world needed more people to be aware that some hotels operate in a much a much more sensitive, kind way to people and planet. And I wanted to spotlight those hotels. It was that simple. And it was tough, you know, people weren't interested. So I started 2015 was when I really focused on celebrating uh, sustainable hotels. That word sustainable was ugly back then. People mm. did not want to hear it. So if I pitched to an editor, the travel editor of a big newspaper, they'd say, oh, no, no one's interested in that, Juliet. Oh, no, not me, not our readers, honestly. Yeah. And now, of course, all of them have asked me to write for them since. Well, I think I've read somewhere that you're trying to make sustainability sexy. Well, I think we've done that. You know, there are a lot of people who've worked in sustainability a lot longer than me, who've studied it and, you know, scientifically are much more immersed in the field. 
but I suppose when it came to branding and storytelling and communications, that's where I wanted to bring it into the mainstream and make it more fun. That's the one thing I really feel proud of in the last few years is the fact that I see a lot of travel conversations happening that I really think I helped advance when it came to talking about sustainability. Yeah, but why do you think you are so plugged in, Juliet? I mean, I'm, we're talking to an audience that is possibly struggling with, well, you know, what do I know? What do I know better than anybody else? What do I have a feel for? I mean, what would you say to them? I'm curious. I've always been curious, whether that's because I'm a Gemini, whether that's because I grew up in New York City where everyone's always, you know, their antennas are alert to everything going on around them. I would say that is it. And I always, I think I love originality. I don't want just to write articles or talk about things that everyone else is talking about. I want to be a bit more thought provoking or, or, or make people just think a bit differently. I do think growing up in New York had a lot to do with that. I do think that forms that way of being. Well, just on that, how did you physically, tangibly differentiate yourself in this way? Because, I mean, travel writing is a very crowded space and thought to be highly desirable. I mean, everyone thinks that they want to be a travel writer. But how did you just sort of structurally sort of set about differentiating yourself? Whenever younger aspiring journalists have asked me, what's my advice? And I've been a journalist for more than a quarter of a century. I always say specialize. No one specific niche or topic better than anyone else. So in the 90s, for me, that was electronic dance music. <laughs> that was my area of knowledge, which as, as a female journalist was also gave me an edge. And so from the noughties, so the last 20 years with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it was boutique hotels. So I know all about boutique hotels. So that was specialization. Now it's sustainable luxury hotels specifically. Some people are very kind and say they love my, my writing and they love my voice. I wouldn't say I'm the best writer in the world, but I do know my topic better than anyone else. Mm. So identify a niche and really own that. So follow your heart. Don't think, oh, that's a fashionable thing to do right now, or that's uh, a hot topic. Just think, what do I care about? What do I really, really want to know better than anyone else? Read about it visit it, experience it. And, and talking about travel writing, well, everyone has a very romanticized vision of that. And I've struggled because it doesn't make financial sense for, I'm single, I'm a mum. It doesn't make financial sense for me to be a travel writer. I earn less now as a travel writer than I did 20 years ago. Journalism rates have gone down that much because the democratization of communication. Mm. So people think, someone said to me in a hotel the other day in Norway, oh, so do you just travel around writing about hotels? Meanwhile, I'm paying to be at that hotel. And I just looked at her and went, it doesn't really work like that. Absolutely. It's a privilege to travel and I love it. I also work as a consultant um, and, and I really love working with hotels on, on a corporate level to, to help them share their stories without greenwash. But to be an actual travel writer, yes, it's competitive, I had an amazing pitch from someone called Shivya in India yesterday. I read it and it was so thoughtful about Patagonia. I thought, gosh, this is taking her ages just to write this pitch. Now imagine she then has to get the commission and then she'll be frankly paid peanuts when she gets it out there. So it's for me, it's a there's a crisis when the media is so poorly paid. But, but yes, it's a wonderful thing to do. When I look at your website, you describe yourself in many different ways. If you take sustainable luxury travel as your starting point, all of those different roles, 
can come very neatly under the umbrella of this one area that you've chosen to specialise in, but give you the versatility and the scope to earn a respectable living. So you're adding value to your own proposition by cleverly offering a range of services. You're using the word cleverly. Again, I think you credit me with a lot more <laughs> deliberate strategizing with my career. I am a communicator and I have, if you, all of those are about communicating. And so I have been a travel expert on BBC Radio London for eight years. Um, I do that every month. I am paid enough for about four cups of coffee. But what it does give me is a platform and a voice and I have visibility or audibility in that case. So all of these things are about amplifying stories that I think are important or should be heard. I'm not sure that it's clever. I really do think this constant multitasking and working across different things is, is confusing for my brain, particularly as I, I get older. I just help people communicate what exactly what you're talking about, what they're best at. I love that more than anything. If you understand what you're good at, you feel more confident. And sometimes yeah. we don't really know. We don't stop and think. My North Star is telling stories of sustainability. So if a job comes in where, Juliet, will you write all of this copy for this spa? Or will you do it all, you know, help this jewellery brand? If it isn't telling a story of sustainability, if it isn't following my North Star, I just don't do it. And I think that was really helpful for me to work out what I'm best at, stay on track and do that. Going back to the idea of monetizing, as women, we need to be more confident. I don't know how it is in Australia, but in London, it's an absolute disgrace how much journalists are paid. And I don't mind that in the last few years, I've got a reputation. I'm asked to do things for free all the time. So be a keynote speaker for a brand. Oh, but there's no fee. I'm like, but that's not fair on those who do pay me. I don't mind that I've got a reputation for asking to be paid and, and placing a value on myself. And when it comes to journalism, I call it fair trade journalism. Um, I put it into Twitter the other day. I'm the only person to ever use that term, but please, if there's anyone in the media listening, let's make fair trade journalism a thing. Because if content isn't paid for and people are just writing things because it allows them to have a free holiday or whatever it is, that's not good. That's part of corruption. That, that means that they have their own agenda. It means they're not putting the reader's uh, needs first, which is why we're journalists. So it's really important everybody in our supply chains get, gets paid. And it's something I talk about a lot. And by the way, it doesn't mean I'm rolling in it. I still do lots pro bono for charities and I still choose to be a journalist and that is not well paid, but I balance it. But we, we all deserve to get paid. We should, as women, when men suggest a consultancy fee to other men, I can tell you the men wouldn't roll their eyes and go, oh, we haven't got a budget for that. Honestly, we're treated very differently as women when we try and ask for grown-up fees. So what do you think really gives you the confidence to do that? I mean, you've said you're confident that you're the best qualified person in the space that you have identified. But that first time you went out to fight for the fee, I mean, I'm totally on your wavelength here. It makes me so furious that we're always expected to do everything for nothing. But the first time you ever went in and really spoke up, can you remember that? Yeah, and I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the confidence. Um, I haven't had the confidence. I'm going to be really honest about, about this, and I've really thought about it a lot. My mum died when I was young. That's why I lived with my grandparents. So I inherited a little bit of money when I was 21. So I didn't have to worry about rent. So I had that backup. 
Um, so I was able to do a lot of work experience and, and work for free, uh, which is a privilege. So if you look at the landscape, if you think it's only people of privilege who are able to get that foot on the ladder, what does that say about the media? So I think it's really important to mentor and, and pay young aspiring journalists from disadvantaged backgrounds, first of all, that's mm. one thing to think about. And then me personally, I grafted. I've always been an absolute hard worker. So I, I, I didn't mind that I did so much for so little. Money was never, ever what drove me. Um, I slightly wish now that I'm approaching 50 <laughs> that it did a little mm. bit more and I had savings in the bank. But I think the confidence is thinking, like I said to you, what's my value? Now, I sat in a meeting yesterday when I give them my advice, because no one knows, I'm not really the best at what I do. I'm sure there are lots of amazing people. I'm just, I really do know hotels. So I know when I give them advice, that advice isn't, it's not the hour I've spent with them there. It's the 20 years I've spent on my time and dime exploring the world, asking engineering or housekeeping about the sustainability, poking my nose around Costa Rica. Just in February, I went to 15 hotels in 10 days. Uh, that was on my own time. Mm. That's my research. So that value of that knowledge and that insight is immense. So mm. I shouldn't feel embarrassed. I do I spend a lot of my time unpaid. I don't have a salary. So I think it's just being much more open and honest. It's not being entitled. That's very different. It's putting value on our knowledge. And I know it's helpful to them as a business. It's a very valid point, And it's something we don't touch on often. There's a book called Open Up, Why Talking About Money Will Change Your Life by Alex Holder. She wrote this book. I know her through a friend. And there was a line in there where it said, it's not nice to be asked. It's nice to be paid. And I think it's really important to have that front of mind. I still, a lot of people who, who understand my role in, in the travel industry will really, will certainly pay me. But all the time, every single day, I'm asked to work for nothing, for a business. And I just yeah. don't even understand the psychology. Would you go into a shop? Would you go yeah. to, to a lawyer and say, would you, would you give me some advice for nothing? What would you say is the critical piece of work you did that was made the difference between being where you were and going to the next level? So when our book came out in 2003, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it absolutely was a disruptive publication and it, it became the darling of sort of advertising and design industries. That was absolutely a key moment. As a brand, Mr. and Mrs. Smith really okay. made a difference. And then I would say, Two years ago, I was appointed sustainability editor of Condé Nast Traveller magazine. I was the first mm. ever sustainability editor. And I would say that was a, also a significant milestone. It really showed that sustainability was a priority and that I was a, a significant voice for our time. Were there any significant crossroads that you came to where you thought, wow, I'm stuck? I think that as somebody who works in the travel industry and we've just gone through what we have, I would have to reference the pandemic. Mm. So beginning of 2020, mm. I had my dream, dream job given to me. I was going to be the new presenter for Channel 4's flagship luxury travel show. We were a week from Channel 4 announcing new talent. We were going to go to Bhutan, Switzerland, India, make this incredible TV show. Now, you know that obviously mm. it didn't happen. But at that moment because I'd put a lot of time into the research and you don't get paid until the camera starts rolling. I actually felt very reflective and philosophical. 
am I sad it didn't happen? Would it have been an incredible opportunity? Would I be, I guess, in inverted commas, kind of famous to, to some degree on TV in the UK, possibly? Do I want that? Absolutely not. <laughs> so I thought I would have been broadcast sitting on top of mountains where I'd been helicoptered in to drink champagne. I hate all that type of luxury now that I'd have no credibility as someone in sustainability. Instead, I then went on to be grounded quite literally by the pandemic. I spent a lot of time instead really thinking deeply about how do we make the travel industry a stronger force for good, which has become a cliche. I'm happy it's become a cliche. I read many books about how, how can businesses operate in a more responsible way. I immersed myself in how can I encourage hotels to follow a stakeholder capitalism model instead of a shareholder capitalism model. None of that would have happened if I hadn't been unable to work. And, and I think pausing, pausing is what many of us don't do enough of. Pause, reflect. My slogan is stop, think, discuss. I think we're so busy running, trying to be, you know, being purposeful, achieve things, actually pausing, reflecting. It's one of the most powerful ways to reset, recalibrate and get on the right path. Do you feel that having come out of the pandemic, that the appetite for your particular area of expertise has dramatically grown? Without a doubt. Now everybody is talking about sustainability to the point where there's a lot of greenwash as well. And so that makes me even more important as a lighthouse through that fog of greenwash. You just talked about replacing the shareholder model with the stakeholder model. This sort of new movement is that you're part of. What's been really exciting to see has been how businesses want to be better businesses where they consider their employees more. They follow the B Corporation model, if you know that. So B Corp, it is a paid for certification, but it's where they're rigorously assessed on mm -hmm. lots of different criteria to see what their impact is, negative and positive. Mm. And so I think within the business sector, we're all much more aware of who we give our money to. And I think we're all well, hopefully craving a lot more transparency and demanding a lot more transparency from businesses. So that's been exciting to see happen. But if, for and instance, say I want to go to India and I want to, I want to feel like, instead of feeling like I'm in a luxury hotel and surrounded by this incredible poverty, but I want to sort of have a more purposeful exchange and really leave something or add something of value to the community that I'm living in. Is that sort of where your niche has landed? That's a perfect example. And I, I will at this moment give serious props to Intrepid Travel, which is headquartered in Australia, of course, and G Adventures is another tour operator. And if you book a holiday through business like that, you know they've considered every link of their supply chain. So in the mm -hmm. case of India, um, I did a great trip there with G Adventures where, you know, we arrive in Delhi, we're picked up by these women who've been taught how to drive so that they're empowered and made to have independent jobs. That mm. is a social enterprise. I think they're called Women on Wheels. They're wonderful. Mm. Then we went to a hotel that was owned by an Indian. That's a really key consideration. So ownership. By its very nature, if you stay in a hotel owned by someone from that place, they're going to be better custodians of that neighborhood and their environment, and they're more likely to look after their local community. So that, mm. that's why that's good. Then we went and did a food tour with um, people who had previously been 
homeless or street people, but they've been given jobs. So it's just thinking more mindfully. Um, and, and this is all part of the stakeholder capitalism model, where you're thinking about purpose rather than supporting a business that's all just about profit. Julia, you've always been ahead of the game on technology. What are the key things that you regard as an absolute basic in order to establish that brand for yourself and really sort of live it in a public way? I think it's really important to, you know, Instagram doesn't need to be about broadcasting or social media doesn't need to be about constantly sharing. It's just about representing your personal brand. I just try and share stories that I hope are interesting to other people. So again, think of your audience. Are they enjoying what you're sharing? I saw someone do something yesterday, which I just think is so old fashioned. They shared a photograph of them in first class on a plane. What does that do other than, hey, look at me? And particularly in these times where you need to be much more sensitive to, to a lot of people can't afford or do things. So I think what I ever do and what I would urge people to do is just think about someone getting that post in their feed. Is your information helpful? Is the image beautiful or uplifting. I once saw in a primary school, a sign on the wall, it said, think before you speak. Is what you're saying T for truthful, H for helpful, I for inspiring, N for necessary and K for kind. And I'd say that primary school message is is the same. Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it inspiring? And, And I really hope that when I share things, again, it's being original, it's helping feed people's curiosity. It's all about just communication that's helpful. The first thing to say about Juliet Kinsman is that she notices what the world she lives in needs. Juliet attributes how she is today to the accumulation of these sometimes difficult aspects of her childhood that have fed into her career, living with her grandparents and imbibing their thrift. Growing up in New York and having to be alert to everything going on around her, that big start with Mr. and Mrs. Smith didn't happen by accident. It came about because she and her friends were looking for something more original, richer as an experience, when they went away for a weekend. It became the kernel of an industry-changing model of small boutique hotels, each with a distinctive point of view, who treat their guests as if they were house guests, not a number on a door. I liked her advice ostensibly to journalists, but really to anyone trying to find their place, to know one specific niche or topic better than anyone else, and then own it. Think about what subject you want to know better than anyone else, read about it, experience it, even if it means doing the research on your own dime. The knowledge Juliet has accumulated and is still seeking out has given her the authority to advise confidently. You can be sure Juliet knows what she's talking about. And then there's the awkward issue of remuneration. Juliet's call for what she calls fair trade journalism, in other words, putting a value on yourself and what you know, is timely. As she says, we all deserve to get paid. And when she gives advice, she makes it clear her fee is not for the hour she spends with a client. It is for the experience she brings to the meeting, which equipped her to be the best person to ask in the first place. That book by Alec Holder, Open Up, why talking about money will change your life, should be required reading in a world where the gender pay gap has disadvantaged women for too long. That's it for today. Thanks to Juliet for coming on the program and to Leonie Marsh for producing. I'm Judy Stewart and this is Unpaused. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.